it's always helpful to step back and say, so where am I? Am I feeling certain and in control? Am I feeling vulnerable? That's then going to give me clues in terms of what things I should do better. We're as likely to be underconfident as we are overconfident. We need to take more risk rather than less risk when we're feeling vulnerable. And that's very counterintuitive. That really fights against our gut, particularly in the finance world. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing the economy and finance. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. When big events happen in the markets, or even in history, analysts, economists, and journalists set out to discover what led to those events, often working backwards, organizing a chain of events into a logical timeline. But on the flip side, accurate forecasting is a far harder skill to master. And our guest today suggests that the same deciding factors we see so easily in hindsight could in fact be easier to see in the present if only we looked through the right lens. Peter Atwater is a behavioral economics pioneer and professor of confidence-driven decision-making at William & Mary and the University of Delaware. His latest book, The Confidence Map, examines the hidden role of confidence in the choices we make and why events described as being unprecedented are often entirely predictable. Peter, welcome to The Bid. Thanks so much, Oscar. Glad to be here. So, Peter, congratulations on publishing your book, The Confidence Map. It's your second book, if I'm not mistaken. In this book, you mentioned control and certainty as these two variables, and you describe a visual graph of four different sectors. So can you walk us through what that graph is and what it's intended to show? So as I was trying to write this book on confidence, I discovered that most people, they know what confidence looks like when they see it but they have a hard time explaining it, and it becomes this random word cloud. As I did more research, what I found was the feelings of certainty and control that we have are really what drive our behavior, that confidence is how we see ourselves faring in the future. We need there to be a sense of predictability and certainty to what's ahead, and we need to have a feeling that we're prepared for it, that we have a sense of control. What I did was to develop a relatively simple framework. It's a two-by-two box chart, a quadrant, that looks at the different magnitudes of certainty and control that we experience. So the four boxes, there's the comfort zone where we have both certainty and control, and the stress center where we lack both of them. And those are what we think of when we think about confidence. The other boxes are hybrid environments. You'd be familiar with what I call the passenger seat, where we have certainty but no control. Anytime we're on an airplane or in a cab, that's the environment that we're in. The fourth environment is what I call the launch pad, where we have control but the outcome's unclear to us. And in the world of financial services, every decision that we make, whether it's to lend, to borrow, to invest, are all made in that environment where we have to imagine what's ahead as we're making the choice today to enter into a transaction. Well, 
Well, I'm taking an airplane later this week, so I, I will definitely be in that passenger seat part of the quadrant. But maybe as you describe those four quadrants, how do people make decisions when they're in each one of those quadrants? You described it well, but take us through the decision-making process for individuals in those four boxes. Sure. So no matter what box we're in, we have to recognize that we're making decisions where we're imagining the future. That imagination becomes critical. It involves the stories we tell and then the outcomes that we imagine based on the choices that we're making. When we're in the stress center, though, where we have a sense of vulnerability, and we don't think of it this way, but vulnerability is the opposite of confidence, we crave familiarity. We need things to be certain when we feel vulnerable. Something's wrong. What happens in that lower left box where we are in the stress center is that our decision-making takes a very narrow focus. I focus on myself, I focus on right here, and I focus on right now. I don't care about the future. I don't care about others, and I don't care about the places that are distant from me. If there's turbulence on your airplane flight later this week, the only person you're going to care about is you in that moment. And this has a big bearing then on the choices we make. We see this in the investment world where people out of nowhere suddenly decide they want to hoard cash. They're craving that certainty. We saw the same thing during the early days of COVID where people were hoarding water and wipes and the things that we needed to address the vulnerability that we were experiencing. And so that focus alters what we want and in turn what we do. At the other end of the spectrum, we're a very different person. We tend to be focused on what I say is us everywhere forever, where we're generous, we're cooperative, we explore, we're interested in the future and we're planning for the future. And you can see this in the investment world with the kinds of things that we invest in when confidence is really high. They're oozing with abstraction. We saw this in 2021 with the whole focus on EVs, space and NFTs and crypto. And today, I think we're seeing a similar phenomenon with AI, where we're so interested in opportunity. And that's the antithesis of what we think about in terms of possibility versus familiarity. That stress zone you described certainly sounds like not a great place to be in, at least not for an extended period of time. But I can't help but think that if you're in that upper right quadrant, that high confidence, high certainty, it sounds really compelling, but could you be overconfident? Isn't there something healthy about maybe a little bit of uncertainty that keeps you somewhat cynical, keeps you asking questions, keeps you intensely curious? How do you think about that upper right quadrant not becoming also a hindrance to the decision maker? So when we're in that upper right hand box, we forget that scrutiny and confidence are inversely related. The more confident we are, the less we pay attention. Because we don't think we have to. So our cognitive processes are inherently lazy. And that laziness is a disservice to us when we're really confident because we're not paying the kind of attention that we should be. The result is that we take too much risk in too great a size, while at the same time paying the least amount of attention. And as you imagine, those three things together often are what precipitate a crisis that then follows. 
So how does somebody then who finds themselves in a certain quadrant, what changes do they need to make in their decision-making to migrate from one box to the next? Or what have been your observations of how people adeptly move across these four quadrants? The first thing is to recognize that confidence isn't a one-and-done experience. The self-help world would like you to believe that once you have confidence, you're going to always have it. And so we're constantly moving around. And I think it's always helpful for us to pause before we're making a decision to step back and say, so where am I? Am I feeling certain and in control? Am I feeling vulnerable? Because that's then going to give me clues in terms of what things I should do better. For example, in the stress center, we're as likely to be underconfident there as we are overconfident in the comfort zone. And so we need to be careful and to take more risk rather than less risk when we're feeling vulnerable. And that's very counterintuitive. That really fights against our gut, particularly in the finance world. But panic tends to be an experience that should lead us to be more optimistic than we are. Panic tends to be a behavior that reflects that the worst is behind us, not ahead of us like we imagined it to be. That's one of the things we need to do. In the launch pad, we need to be careful about our imagination of the future because if I have control but no uncertainty, I'm likely to make a choice based on what I imagine. And particularly in the finance world, we need to be open to both sides of the potential outcome that's ahead. And if you are certain of an outcome, that's God's way of telling you You're either being too pessimistic or too optimistic about what's ahead. When you think about like high performing individuals or some of the people that you've come across, do they rotate across all four of these quadrants and that's okay? Or do like high performing individuals, people in leadership positions, whether that's in the public or private sector, do they typically operate in only one or two of these? No. So what I find is people who are resilient recognize that all four of these boxes are going to happen. So it's not about avoiding a box. It's more about recognizing that I'm going to be in the stress zone. I'm going to be in the passenger seat. I'm going to be in the launch pad. That those are a natural part of a business cycle of a life experience. So their focus isn't on avoiding those, but getting comfortable in those boxes. And to appreciate that they're not going to be there forever. I think one of the mistakes a lot of inexperienced leaders make is that they get themselves in the stress center and they become paralyzed. They feel like it's never going to end. Somebody who's resilient recognizes, oh no, this is today. And what I'm going to do when I'm in that box, and this is where the high performers, I think, really differentiate themselves, is that they pause to say, what can I do? What must I do to regain certainty and control? Both of those are very actionable. Interestingly, one of the best things people can do is to ask for help. Asking for help isn't weakness. It's actually taking control of the situation. Right. And that leader who finds themselves in the stress center and knows how to cope with it, it's almost going back to an earlier question, right? The leader who's in the comfort zone, perhaps the really good leader recognizes that now is a good time to ask questions of what could go wrong or what am I missing and to not develop overconfidence but to be almost like a healthy paranoia, I think, is how I'm picturing somebody who knows how to properly navigate being in that box. 
Yeah, they're never complacent. They're always anticipating something that could go wrong, and they're not afraid of it. They're not being doomsday about it. It's a much greater awareness of the fact that conditions change. I think about at the other end of the spectrum, some of the most interesting conversations I've had have been with emergency room doctors. The stress center is their day, and they spend their day going back and forth and back and forth. And their behavior in the stress center is so different from what, particularly in corporate leadership, if you listen to emergency room teams, they're talking candidly about what's wrong. They're sharing information. They're not focused on what happened as much as what is. So there's never a concern about blame or shame. It's like, look, this is where we are. And all of the energy is focused on resolving not only the problem, but the vulnerability arising from the problem. In the medical world, the difference between curing a patient and healing a patient is the restoration of confidence, the elimination of the vulnerability that patients feel. And I think sometimes leaders get themselves so focused on the problem, what's broken, what's crashed, what's burned, and they forget that what makes something a crisis isn't the problem, but the feelings that arise from the problem. And that as much attention needs to be given to those feelings as to the situation itself. Because the crisis won't be done until those feelings are restored. And an emergency room doctor, certainly emotions run high in a hospital or any sort of medical setting. Maybe bringing it back to markets, because emotions can run high with markets as well. And you talked about COVID and some of the behaviors that we saw during the COVID era. Or you talked about hoarding cash especially in stressful periods for markets where investors don't want to lose money. When you think about some of the recent market shifts in history, how do you apply this frame, these four boxes, to how investors react? If we look at what happened with the regional banks earlier this year, you could see that sense of panic, people moving rapidly into the stress center. And I think one of the things, Oscar, that's so unique about today is the speed and scale at which groups can mobilize and translate changes in sentiment into action. Between social media and online trading, what we're seeing is these micro bursts of energy. And I think that investors today need to appreciate that the speed at which markets are moving up and down, arguably meme stocks represent the behavior at the other extreme, is that we're seeing this highly impulsive, highly emotional behavior at both ends of the spectrum. And to not fall victim to it. As I've said, panic is a sign that we're approaching the lows in confidence. It's not a time to be afraid, but a time to be preparing for a turn that's likely to happen imminently. And the same things with manias. Don't become seduced by the siren song. And it makes sense. I think about Warren Buffett and be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. It's kind of what you're touching on, being sometimes a contrarian. Hopefully the emergency room analogy, that person is a well-trained professional who knows how to control their emotions. But it seems like in markets, people have trouble controlling those? Or have you witnessed something differently? What I've found is that individuals may have a hard time controlling their own emotions. It's very helpful for them 
to use the framework that I have to identify where is the crowd today? Where are others? And it's remarkable to me how quickly we can spot where the crowd is on this quadrant. And just being able to objectively say the crowd is panicking allows you to take what would otherwise be a highly subjective and emotional phenomenon and look at it almost clinically. And that then allows you to make decisions in a much more really decisive and definitive way that allows you to have distance between your own emotion and actions. And that then speaks to how investors can use those insights, knowing where the crowd is in those four quadrants is what allows you to make that forward-looking decision in your portfolio. That is what sets you apart from the crowd. And if you do that, that's usually where you generate better performance. Yeah. And there are three dimensions that are easy to identify because at all locations, our confidence, those feelings of certainty and control, our actions and our stories exist in equilibrium. So I can look at where the crowd is in three different ways. What are the headlines that we're seeing in financial television? Or what are the actions that we're seeing people buy? As an economist, we talk a lot about elasticity. I think we overlook something called confidence elasticity, which is to say, how does confidence drive the choices we're making? And there's a high confidence elasticity for cash, for example, when confidence is low. That's when we demand it most. And just knowing that the range of investments that we're going to buy is a function of our level of confidence allows me at all times to spot where the crowd is. Because what's hot in the minds of investors is revealing their level of confidence. Are they stampeding into cryptocurrencies or are they stampeding into cash? Those are things that I see at the two ends of the confidence spectrum. Peter, when I think about investors, I'm thinking about mom and pop and the individual investor, but have you worked with what I'll call professional investors, portfolio managers, people who do this for a living, who wake up every day and are thinking about what stocks or bonds to buy. And if you've worked with those folks, how do they think about this confidence map, the four quadrants, and what do you observe in these individuals? So most of my clients are institutional investors. And in the same way that they're looking at economic data, they're looking at industry data, they're using sentiment as another overlay. What they're interested in is the indicators of sentiment that I identify as being representative of things that might be important to them and their portfolios. So for example, looking at the behavior in luxury today and the excesses that we're seeing there, and how is that different maybe from what we saw a year or two years ago? Because cultural trends from the music we listen to to the TV shows that we watch have a bearing on our behavior and they reflect how we feel. The media is an enormous mirror of our mood. Peter, just taking a step back, maybe I should have asked you this at the beginning, but why is this topic of confidence something that you have dedicated so much time to? Just curious as to what is it that got you interested in either this particular topic or maybe even just behavioral economics in the first place? As somebody who spent the first part of his career in financial services, I had never really considered the role that emotions play 
in the choices that investors make. I sort of missed the forest for the trees. During the financial crisis, it became clear to me that we made a series of choices to borrow, to lend, to buy homes that were in characteristics completely different in 2007 from 2009. And so what I wanted to do was to understand why did we make those decisions? Were there characteristics that were universal? That while the means may change, what are we doing differently and consistently from crisis to crisis, from euphoria to euphoria? Twain says history rhymes, and I wanted to know why. And what I found was that the behaviors that we exhibit all act in a very consistent way based on our level of confidence. And this is something that exists not just in the markets, but outside of the markets. The trends in fashion repeat. The trends in architecture repeat. The trends in politics repeat. There are so many different ways that confidence sets up what we're doing outside of the markets that then become useful to investors in the markets. So some of that real-world experience working in financial services, and now when you stepped out into academia, you had an opportunity to just see the role that emotion plays in markets. And I think for certain, anybody who's watched the markets this year, or even over a longer period of time, could attest to the fact that it is an emotional exercise investing. And those who can control it probably do a better job in the long term. Peter, we appreciate you joining us and sharing with us your framework. Congratulations again on your second book, The Confidence Map. And thank you for joining us on The Bid. Thank you so much, Oscar. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bid. Subscribe to The Bid wherever you get your podcasts. This content is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or a solicitation. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. In the UK and non-European economic area countries, this is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In the European economic area, this is authorised and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. For full disclosures, go to blackrock.com slash corporate slash compliance slash bid dash disclosures.